humanitarian. For this week's episode, I happily closed my laptop and took the train down to Melbourne. Relishing the novelty of a face-to-face meeting with people close to home, I sat down with Kate and Beth, co-directors of the Humanitarian Advisory Group. We spoke about the role of research-focused agencies, what diversity means for decision-making, and what it means to work globally and act locally. I threw some challenges at them, and some of their answers may surprise you. It was a delightful chat, and I hope you'll get something out of it too. I am thrilled to be joined this evening by Kate Sutton and Beth Eggleston, who jointly direct the Humanitarian Advisory Group here in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome both of you to Trumanitarian. Thank you, Meg. Thanks, Meg. And um, I'll start by acknowledging that we are recording this podcast today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners I would also like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging and other Aboriginal elders of other communities here in Australia. Now, let's get stuck in. Um, For those listeners not yet aware of the Humanitarian Advisory Group, shortened often to the HAG, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about your organisation and what it means to be a couple of proud HAGs? Thank you, Meg. I must say it's such an honour to be chatting with you today because us uh, at HAG have uh, been a fan of this podcast for some time, so it's uh, quite an honour to actually be invited to participate. So thank you very much for that. Yes, Kate and I are two of the original four HAGs that started the organisation back in 2012. We are now a merry band of 14 HAGs, um, which is quite exciting. So we're based in Australia, based at in Melbourne, and we do have one of our HAGs based in Queensland. We started up really because I sort of feel like we were four frustrated aid workers who had come from United Nations, CARE, Oxfam, World Vision, and we we wanted to start something new that was that was agile, that was responsive and could ask hard questions. I think we felt like We had been caught up in large bureaucratic organisations and whilst we were wanting to make a difference, perhaps we felt like that wasn't happening in the way that we had wanted it to. So we started up Humanitarian Advisory Group and here we are nine years later, which is um, quite exciting, quite amazing. We're still quite surprised. Um, And we're a business. Many people think that HAG is uh, an NGO. In fact, we are a business and we're structured as a social enterprise. So the idea is we wanted to be able to to use the power of business to generate ideas and to be able to follow up some of those ideas that perhaps operational agencies uh, find it too controversial or or tricky to, to, to track down. So we thought we'd ask the hard questions and be able to support those humanitarian agencies, those operational agencies in what they do and provide an evidence base for them to do it better. So would you call yourself primarily a research agency? Ooh, we do do research. So research, independent evaluations, training facilitation, and any kind of technical advice really related to humanitarian action. And it's probably, I mean, it's an interesting time to be an agency like yours or like mine at Ground Truth where there is increasingly, you know, a number of these researchy type agencies, um, I suppose, as a response to this endless quest for quality programming um, that's come about for a number of reasons. How do you fit into that picture? Do you think that there's there's too many of these agencies? Should there be some sort of cap on it? 
Um, how do you make sure that you're sort of staying relevant in that way? I, th- I think it's a really interesting and live uh, question, Meg. I actually don't think the question is whether or not there are too many research agencies. I think it's about whether or not the research organisations are actually providing the impact that's proportionate to their role. Um, and I think it's a question that we always have to be asking of ourselves because there can be very few research agencies, but if what they're producing isn't actually having impact or actually improving the way the humanitarian system works, then there are already too many. Whereas if you have quite a few, but they're actually providing really useful insights and they're being very relevant to what the live questions are, then I think that's really helpful. Um, and so in terms of the sort of, I guess, the niche is, is the, the piece you're asking um, for HAG, I think it comes down to we, we try to be a really practitioner-led um, research organisation. Um, I know that for some academics, they read our papers and would probably be quite horrified um, by the, you know, the methodology or the depth of it. But for us, it's it's always a balance between making sure that the research you're doing is actually timely and relevant um, versus, you know, doing a research project for like three or four years. And then maybe you've missed your window to be able to influence and change. So we definitely come in at that practitioner point. Um, and I think the other piece really for us uh, is around having nationally led uh, research. So, you know, during COVID, one of the most exciting things for us was we could continue with our whole research program because pretty much all of our research is led by practitioners and researchers in their country context. Mm. And so we weren't then limited by the fact that we couldn't jump on a plane because we don't actually conduct the research um, or the technical support per se in country. So. You know, I think we, we fit a particular place. I think it's a really different place to a number of the universities and other institutions, which obviously play a really critical role in another space. Um, but I, for, for all of us, all of us operating in the sector, if we don't have a really good understanding of our impact, then we're too many or we're not doing the right role. And that is a very interesting and important point because organisations like ours, even though they are in this sort of research category, are not academia because we don't take funding from academic pots, we take it from humanitarian pots, which means that technically we're taking it away from programming. Um, I think your impact point was really important and I guess it would be good to maybe break that down a bit more. So how, as HAG, do you make decisions about what you want to focus on and then how you are going to track the impact of, of what you're doing and how do you sort of make sure that it's actionable? So... I. I think it's really hard um, and I think one of the reasons it's hard is because with research there is always a lag with impact. Um, So you're always looking at what your research impact may be a year down the track or two years down the track. So one of the important things and I think it's something we've learned a lot about over the last three years is how do you um, how do you track over time and and understand those influences. Um, You know I I think one of the big things for us has been around having a design process that has been really led by our national partners. So we've just gone through a process of redesigning our research program. Um, And it was actually a really lot. It was a a 12 month process, really, from start to end. And what we did was we actually contracted our national researchers to be able to find out what the critical issues were in their context, in Mm -hmm. their regions, so they could tell us what they needed research on. I think the other really big piece for us is understanding research uptake. So we definitely, and all research um, organisations, I'm sure, have that moment where you've put loads and loads of effort into a massively um, 
time-intensive research product, and then you launch it and you're really, really excited, and then you don't really get the feedback and engagement that you wanted. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the lesson for me is to be able to go, okay, how do we learn from that and understand why that research product didn't get traction versus another one that did? And if we're constantly going through that reflective process of saying, actually, this piece worked because we spoke to the issues that we're going to really help practitioners in the field because I think the practitioners in the field are like overwhelmed sometimes with um, information and data that they're meant to take on board and use so unless we're actually providing it in a way that helps them do their job then it won't have uptake and we need to be monitoring that and understanding that um, to improve our research. It's interesting that you touch on this approach where you're sort of trying to make decisions that are driven by local need, it seems. Um, I saw a very interesting tweet this week about the colonisation of research and it was this statement from a Rohingya activist that said something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing, but your work might be interesting to you um, in inverted commas, but it's our life and it's our life that we're living. And the point wasn't necessarily to criticise research per se um, and it was definitely aimed more at academia but the point was more that doing such research does come with this immense level of privilege and really needs to somehow help the people living in the situations that we're researching or that we're trying to find out about. Um, I know that this is obviously something that the two of you think about a lot um, and I guess a question linked to that is how do you think that we can make sure that some of this action research could be better utilised for real change in communities and how do we make sure that we're sort of localising research and making sure that knowledge is in the hands of those who need it to make their own decisions? That's a brilliant question, Meg. Um, it also relates back to what you were just saying about, I mean, we're obviously trying to make this impact, but you were mentioning about that that finite pot of money where the money you know is coming to these research organizations and I think we have I mean Kate and I talk often about how are we actually adding value how are we providing value for money in the projects that we're undertaking mm. and that the questions that we're trying to answer and I guess we're trying to provide an evidence base which will allow operational humanitarian agencies to you know, enhance their efficiency and effectiveness and therefore be able to do more with the, with the funding that they have. And I think this piece around who owns the knowledge, who generates the knowledge is something Kate mentioned our design process, our 12-month design process, and what came out so strongly was this piece around people, power, localisation and this piece around who generates knowledge, who owns knowledge, mm. and are we ever understanding local context enough to to work with the local knowledge that is there are we listening and I know this is something obviously at, at ground truth solutions you ask this question all the time around are we listening and going through this process and hearing people more than 700 people from more than 50 countries we've tried to find out what what were people prioritizing but not just the areas and thematic areas but also what products do they want mm. do, do, are they wanting to have a podcast like of course we would all uh, like to listen to um or are they wanting a training or a, a, a short snappy brief are they wanting a tool I mean some people did say to us during this process we don't want more data we have all the data we need we just want to find out how to do things we know what to do we just don't know how to do it which is why um a piece we really want to touch on and this will probably come out throughout our chat 
and so we want to bring in the behavioural science piece as well around mm. how we can actively unblock some of these bottlenecks and actually see some of that, that change. Um, can I jump in with an example? Yeah, absolutely. There? Because I think the question around who generates and owns knowledge is, is a really critical one for our sector because right now the power around research definitely sits in Western mm-hmm. countries and contexts. And I think that that is something that is going to have to shift. And I remember um, in one of the pieces of research we did, we had national researchers there and they just watched a cluster meeting. And there was this fascinating scenario where like, all these flip charts had been up on the wall. And then there was this physical fight at the end of the meeting where the international advisor wanted the flip charts to take them away to be able to draft the report. And the national government representative also wanted the flip charts because it was his country oh, and wow. it was his cluster meeting. And to me, it was just such a um, it's such a wonderful story. It was it was so you know beautifully captured in the sense that there, there is this thing around knowledge is power, and that whole idea of when you have all these great ideas that come up in the cluster meeting, who owns that? Is that actually mm. um, you know the, the person in context, or is it the international advisor who's chaired the meeting? And, and I think the same question applies to research. Who gets to say what we research and who gets to say which findings are interesting and which ones aren't? And I think the other big question around this, which links into the whole evaluation piece for me, is who gets to define what impact is positive? And we have all our OECD DAC criteria and we have all these approaches to saying what we believe is a quality approach, which guides and forms most of the work that we do as researchers um they're all western frameworks that we use when we do our research um and how do we try and turn that on its head and actually research things in a way that makes sense um to the people who are then able to use the data mm-hmm. and so i think you know we we have not completed this journey i don't want to give that impression at all i feel as though we are really really early steps but i think um we're trying harder and harder to ask those questions of ourselves and to encourage our researchers to ask those questions of us. And so particularly in our new research program, which will be kicking off in July, it's how do we shift that balance even within the research program? Because if we're researching things like power imbalances in the system, you also then have to be thinking about the power imbalances within our research program um, in order to actually be authentic about it or to be able to, to really talk to it in a way that doesn't just seem hypocritical. Um, so I think it's, it, it's really challenging. And to be honest... Um, it's slightly daunting because I feel as though we there are lots of areas we could still be critiqued on and we should be critiqued on. And I think it's about being open to allowing people to say, who are you to stand and say X, Y and Z? Mm-hmm. And for us to be able to really challenge ourselves to, to, to shift on that. Mm. Is that too long? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's great. Got very passionate. No, I think linked to that is this sort of, Particularly recently, I think I've felt this real sort of existential crisis around, you know, when you do have this immense privilege that comes with being a research agency or a, an m and agency or, you know, whatever you might be from week to week and that you are taking this funding from the same pots that it comes from, from a sector where, you know, we are always the first people to say this sector is so supply-driven and it's so driven by agendas from whether it's donors or massive agencies or whatever it is. Um, And sometimes I wonder that, you know, even as agencies like ours that are sort of trying to push the envelope or change things, that you are also sort of beholden to this thing where you might become like sort of a checkbox for something so 
you know, if for me, obviously, it's accountability. For you, there's a whole host of issues where, you know, you might get funded to do a report on something, whether it's accountability or PSEA or localization, and you sort of maybe that's just someone sort of having this throw some research at it syndrome and they're ticking their box. Um, you know, you obviously rely on on funding like anyone else does. How do you think you sort of push against that and how do you make sure that you're driving an agenda based on what what is needed by by people who, who need it? So I've got a couple of thoughts and I'm sure Beth will have some too, but um, I, I think the key thing for me is around asking internally and also asking donors to continue to, to ask the question about whether or not it's proportionate because... Um, I think there is a role for standing back and to be able to reflect on something and bring new perspectives. And, and as Beth said, we've really seen that by having behavioural science come in mm. externally for us and be able to just shine a new light on some of the issues that we would have considered to be really intractable and difficult to tackle. And, the, and, and this wonderful woman we've been working with has just been able to say, how about looking at it this way? Mm. So I, I, I think there is a role for it. I think the challenge is... If it becomes disproportionate and there is too much funding going into that process and not enough for the operational agencies to actually be able to do anything with it, mm-hmm. then it becomes a really frustrating situation. And I feel um, I, I, I feel frustrated for those agencies because I see um, all of this, these areas they're being required to do better work on, all these things they're being able to do and all these times they're being told they're not doing it properly. But the question for me is, are they being resourced to be able to do it properly? Because yes... You can shine on a light on things in lots of different ways, but if they actually don't have the people to be able to do it, they're never going to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's, you know, a really important thing. And the only other thing I would say is that whilst I think sometimes it is used as a tick box exercise, our donors have actually been really good about holding us accountable for impact. Um, I found it really interesting where donors have come to us and have said, that's great that you're doing interesting research, but with what impact? And how are you going to help us use that research? And how are you going to help operational agencies use that research? And actually being prepared to not only fund the research itself, but being able to fund the engagement that needs to come with the research so that you can actually walk alongside partners. And rather than just saying, hey, you should be doing that differently, actually being able to say, have you tried it this way? Could we do it this way? Can we help you do that? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important part of like the follow-up piece of research. Are there things that would make that process more effective? So obviously when you are the agency who is sort of looking into things and trying to answer questions and providing evidence and then you're also being held to account to an extent for the impact of that but obviously there's this whole ecosystem of people who have probably more ability than you do of actually making sure that those recommendations mean something are there other things kind of within the, the sector or the humanitarian ecosystem or the garden, as Lars Peter calls it, that might be more conducive to making, you know, the humanitarian sector sort of more willing or able to be able to act on some of this research? Yes. So I think a really big piece of it in my mind is trust, because as long as agencies feel as though research is set up to catch them out or to highlight issues, I think you immediately set up a dynamic whereby there's not an openness to to learn and engage and also not this sense that we're all in it together. Mm. Um, And so I think research has to be framed as 
is this helping you? Because if it's not, then even if we feel like the, the research rigor has been amazing and that we've come out with really great results and wish it, but, but if actually it's um, undermining people and undermining their capacity to be able to do their job, then ultimately I think it's failed, regardless of how rigorous the research was. And so I think there's got to be that, that trust established with the agencies um, that you're working with in order, in order for that to happen, really. I love what you said about the, the privilege. We're absolutely in a privileged position. I feel like we, we have the distance, we have most of the time, the time as well, to reflect on what these hard questions are, we listen to what some of the hard questions are from operational agencies, and then we have the luxury to be, be able to explore these further and come up with some considerations or, or recommendations. And I think it's so interesting looking at this, um, the great new report, this Time to Decolonise Aid report, where some of the recommendations there are, you know, to us as individuals, asking us to acknowledge that privilege, that privilege and that baggage. And I, I think... Some of the, the recommendations to different, you know, to donors, individuals, to NGOs, really ask us to take a long, hard look at what we're bringing to humanitarian assistance, humanitarian mm. action. Um, and I think I, I just love how what, one of the quotes I love the most in, in this report, and it's something I guess I've been trying to say for ages, which is around if we want things to shift, a lot of this for me is about risk. So how do you increase your appetite for risk? But I think the way in which the authors of this report phrase it is much better, which is around, uh, so one of the recommendations for donors is to fund courageously and to trust generously. And I think we don't see enough of that. I think if we took risks and actually, um, you know, were more courageous in the way that we fund, in the way that we listen, in the way that we act, that we may actually see the transformation that we've been seeking. But um, I, I don't know if we if we see that appetite for risk and if we're actually going to see that happen in the future. I'm mm. not sure. Do you think that's linked to a lack of appetite to discuss failure as well in our sector? Because I know that that's something that we grapple with a lot at Ground Truth is that, you know, we, we sort of want to push things a bit further and try things and then sort of tell people when it's, when it's not working and on the other hand, you know, we really want to see that from, from more of these big operational agencies. We want to see when something didn't work and why and how can we all kind of learn from that. Is that something that you've also been grappling with? Absolutely. Kate, Kate and I for a long time have, we'd love the idea of having a fail fest just to bring everyone around the table and talk about in a really mature way, this is, this is what hasn't worked for us, this is what we're finding difficult. And I for me, that's linked a lot around independence, mm -hmm. independence from where you get your funding. So I'm a big fan of the work that MSF does around publishing work around their failures, where they wish they'd made different decisions, um, where they wish they'd done things differently. And I would like to think that we were getting to the point where there is a maturity in the relationship between, and let's be honest, they're quite competitive actors now with a shrinking pot of money mm -hmm. uh, and growing need. Uh, international NGOs in particular are under a lot of pressure to deliver more for less. Um, so how could they come together around the table and actually sort of say, you know, we, we want to talk about where it hasn't worked. And I, I am disappointed that perhaps we haven't created the environment for that to happen. Um, I don't know whose role it is to do that. I know there's been interesting conversations around having independent humanitarian ombudsmen who would uh, explore some of these issues and really bring out the failures and unpack 
the reasons why there were failures. But I would love to see that happen more. And I would love to see how, you know, us as HAG could help um, provide a, a space where that could happen. And I suppose linked to that, there's often pushback because there's a sense that, you know, in the private sector, you can innovate and fail forward because you're not playing with people's lives, as it were. Um, but I guess I would counter that by saying we very rarely even know the impact of what's happening in the humanitarian sector. Um, and if we sort of spoke to people more and found out, you know, whether something was failing from their perspective on the receiving end, um, I think that there's a lot that could be learnt. But I think for all the reasons that you've outlined, there's not necessarily always an appetite for that. Um, you've said a lot of things about kind of localising research and trying to listen more to people, I guess, both on the receiving end of aid, but also people who sort of have more of a stake in facilitating humanitarian response locally. Let's um, move even more local for a moment, which is the room that we're sitting in, where we're looking over a nice Melbourne skyline. Um, I wanted to just touch on the humanitarian advisory group, I suppose, has been interesting to me for a while in the sense that as an international humanitarian actor, in a way, um, you do take quite a specific approach to your local environment and how you engage with that, how you act in a sort of socially responsible way. Um, it's quite a stark contrast for me, having worked in some expat roles in places like Geneva, where, you know, there's a lot of people living these lives of incredible privilege, completely disconnected from their surroundings, um, obviously focusing on hopefully doing good work within their roles, um, but there's quite a disconnect between them and the environment in which they're living as, as expatriates, I suppose. Um, you're living and working, you know, in your home and your community. And as you said in the introduction, Beth, you're working as a B corporation, not an NGO. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that and about your approach to local social responsibility and what that means for you as an organisation? This is something we've been passionate about for quite some time, actually. I think right from the beginning of starting up Humanitarian Advisory Group, we made this decision, as I mentioned, to be a business. But I think we didn't just want to be a consulting firm. We just did not want to be the same old, same old, just a business, just a firm, just another one of those organisations that just... People come in, they worked really hard, they leave an empty shell at the other end. That that just isn't what we wanted to be about. We also felt like it was um, incredibly important to walk the talk. So if we were talking about diversity and inclusion in our research or if we were talking about, um, you know, locally local leadership or, or supporting localisations in the research we were doing, then we had to actually do that ourselves. Mm -hmm. So quite early on, we decided that we wanted to um, have our business as a social enterprise model, which means that we generate our revenue through, through trade, not through grants, um, but also that, that any profits that are made, then we, we reinvest back into the humanitarian sector, and that's wherever organisations ask that to be spent. So it might be pro bono or low bono uh, services, understanding people might want a piece of research or they may want an event, whatever that may be. But it's not just that um, that piece around profits either. It's around what does our procurement look like when we, you know, we're a, we're a business. There's a whole bunch of services that we need to procure to actually go, whether that be, you know, office space or printing or whatever that may be. Ensuring that we actually jump through a, a few hoops when we're choosing 
where we spend our money. Every dollar that we spend, we want to ensure that that's actually having some impact. And that's actually led us to have a lot of really great conversations. It's led us to um, become a carbon neutral organisation. We're doing some you know, research and work at the moment on how the humanitarian sector can be more involved in climate action. And we realised that we needed to take a hard look at how, how are we travelling? How, how are we working? How are we actually supporting some of these recommendations that are coming out through our research? So we've actually really enjoyed the B Corp certification process because not only did it lead us to ask ourselves a lot of questions, there's also a lot of research, a lot of research and a lot of resources through that, pre, that process that allowed us to uh, access different experiences from different businesses. So they were able to say, well, we also wanted to either be carbon neutral or we wanted to be able to work in a different way. And we can learn from those different organisations. And I think in the humanitarian sector, it's very tempting to say we can't look at um, our carbon footprint or our emissions or we can't look at the way we treat our staff because we're saving lives. And I think we, I admit, we we have the luxury of stepping back and saying, well, we have time on our side. We're, We're not the ones on the front line. We're an enabling agency. But the idea is... How can we want to get up every morning and, and want our team and our staff to get up every morning and want to come to work at Humanitarian Advisory Group because they feel like uh, at every step, not just the deliverable that they send through to a government or an NGO or, or the Red Cross, but also the way in which they got there was something that aligned with their own values. Mm. And Beth has been amazing at holding us accountable to this as well, which I find really, like it's been so helpful because we have like four results areas that we track on a quarterly basis. And one of those is our social impact. So we have metrics around how we are contributing on social impact. And she really holds our feet to the fire on that, which I think is so, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's tough. Um, <laughs> she looks like a hard task. She's, but it's, it's so important. And, and I think it, it's fascinating how you see staff own it, and actually engage with the business in a different way when they feel like they believe that the business is doing good for the world as mm. well as the products are doing good. It's, yeah, well done, Beth. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, um, and I think that's a great example of, I know something, Beth, you and I have spoken about before, which is this idea that, you know, just sort of having an intention to do good is not enough and you can't say by working in this sector I am therefore doing a good job. There's a real sort of weight of responsibility that comes with trying to do it well um has this this sort of local global approach that you've been taken um you've been taking given you any particular inspiration for the international sector and has your involvement in your local communities i know beth you also volunteer with the red cross here um has that sort of given you any inspiration or any ideas or or grounding about how we can sort of conduct ourselves in the international sphere I will say it's it's kind of interesting because I wish that someone had told me very early on um, that a great way to learn about doing international aid work is to volunteer in your own community. Um, here am I coming back after years of field work and setting up HAG and now sort of, you know, you know, really enjoying learning about how emergency services works in Australia. And I'm fascinated about perhaps... Um, of course, there's so many of the same issues. There's so much of the same politics, coordination challenges, all that kind of thing. And I do, I guess I feel a level of frustration sometimes about knowing about 
all the, the goodwill and time and resources that are ploughed into best practice globally, you know, these guidelines, benchmarks, standards that we have. And, of course, the same thing happens at a domestic level. And you think if only there was a little more overlap and perhaps a little bit more sharing um, you know, between those two levels, I, I think there could be a lot of a lot of learning there. Um, but um, I know I've, I find it fascinating to understand um, when I'm talking to people who are wanting to get into the humanitarian aid sector and, and when I say, well, start here, what, what are the kind of organisations you can volunteer here with, you know, right, right here in Australia in your own community? And it's just not something that people spoke about. You know, when I entered the sector 20 years ago, that was not the advice I got. It was sort of like you need to go and volunteer, you know, far-flung country and sort of look at that. And so I love the fact that um, young students now are hopefully you know, joining my emergency services team and maybe things will take a different track. And this could be because of, of COVID. People are not able to go abroad and, and get that, that kind of experience and the usual kind of path people had to getting into the sector. And I wonder how that will actually shift the sector as we're going forward because people will have a different experience and a different worldview mm. as they're actually stepping in to work with some of those big organisations. Um, another thing about your organisation, which is that you've had, um, I guess, all along less so now than in the beginning, but a distinct absence of men in your team, um, Talking about diversity, you've recently published a diagnosis on your own team diversity and how you're working on that. You've also done or continue to do, I think, some really interesting research on diversity in our sector. I've seen that your organisation is quite focused on, you know, trying to promote a different sort of leadership. And through your internship program, you've been trying to sort of build up this generation of future leaders working with Indigenous groups you're quite active allies for LGBTQI communities. Um, I will admit that I was very disappointed to see the outcome of the appointment of the new ERC. Um, based on the last podcast that I did, I was expressing that I was quite hopeful about what that could mean for our sector. And I don't think that's an undiplomatic thing to say because I think, you know, it's not necessarily a personality issue for me. It's it's really about representation and what it means for people to sort of see themselves in leadership roles. Um, before we started recording, I was talking about in Australia this reality show of The Bachelorette um, and that today the internet has really exploded because for the first time there will be someone on that show who is sort of representative of various elements of diversity. Um, she's an Indigenous woman, she's bisexual, and just seeing the positive responses to that and that, you know, that's pop culture. But we work in a sector that constantly claims to be about decolonisation and shifting power and, you know, showing, you know, little girls living in crisis that they can change their situations and they can have an impact. Um how important do you think it is to sort of balance this out? And I guess, do you see diversity and leadership as really, you know, does it really matter? And to what extent has either your way of working or your research demonstrated um, that it does or, or maybe that it doesn't so much? So this is a huge question, Megan, one I get very excited about. <laughs> um, I, I think the thing that really struck me when we started delving into this was how far the private sector had gone with this. So the private sector have a really good understanding of what diversity and inclusion brings. So they can tell you that if they have a diverse and inclusive board, their risk management 
increases by 20%. Like they have mm-hmm. 20% less accidents on oil rigs when they have more women on their boards. Um, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> the oil rigs in particular. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, their, their innovation, like it just increases dramatically. Um, and one of the fascinating things for me is when we first set up and actually um, engaged on our research advisory committee, we had a, um, a representative from Deloitte who led on their diverse inclusive stuff. And she was great because she got on the phone to me and she said, Kate, I'm just not sure that we're going to be able to work with you because you're all women. And I was like, hang on a minute. Isn't that the point? This is brilliant. She's like, no, 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 you are totally missing the point. The point is diversity. It's not about having necessarily a particular type of person at the top. It's about making sure that whatever your team is at the top of whatever organization is listening to diverse voices and is, you know, engaging in different ways with different communities. Um, And that really, you know, I'd gone from a position, I guess, three or four years ago of thinking about women in leadership, which I'm still passionate about, but I'm passionate about it because we don't see that representation being balanced at the top. Not because women are inherently better or worse or whatever leaders than than men, or that people from different racial backgrounds are necessarily better or worse, or but just that they bring different voices to the table. Mm-hmm. And this, to me, is the really important thing that I think we're missing in our sector. And we are missing the link between what happens if we create that more diverse and inclusive leadership them for improving the way that we manage something like sexual exploitation and abuse. Mm -hmm. What does it do for the way that we manage innovation? What does it do for accountability to affected populations? Because what we have at the moment in our sector is lots of anecdotal data. So people will say things like, oh, well, we had lots of women on our management board and so we did protection so much better. And and that's great, right? That's great. But there's no, that's not evidence. Um, And so what we've been working on and what I've been really passionate about for the last few years, working with um, a couple of team members who've just been incredible in terms of pushing this work, is to get really strong evidence. Because I think people don't always change ways because they think it's the right thing to do. They change ways sometimes when there's really clear evidence. And that was absolutely borne out in the private sector. I'm hoping it will be borne out in our sector. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just got our wonderful statistician has just got all our stats back to us to show that there is indeed a very strong correlation between three leadership teams, that, sorry, 13 leadership teams that we worked with um, in Asia. And we profiled those leadership teams. Um, and there is a correlation between the diversity and inclusion of those leadership teams and how innovative they are and the way that they are able to adapt and come up with solutions to difficult challenges in context. Mm. And so I am just beyond excited with that, Meg, because to me, when we're able to start saying there is real evidence this makes a difference, um, then hopefully people will start to sit up and thinking thinking about it a bit, a bit differently. So it, to me, it's not so much about an individual, although I probably share your disappointment, but at the same time, it's it's around the team that is then around an individual as well mm-hmm. um, and the leadership that is shown on diversity and inclusion and the extent to which different voices are brought into and heard um, in making some of the critical decisions that are going to face our sector. Because quite frankly, when we're, we're struggling as a sector, I think. And so unless we have some different ideas and from different perspectives, um, I think we're, we are going to really be challenged going forward. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the key for and I suppose it's not, I mean, it's not really surprising, is it, that if you have teams where you bring in a lot of different views, that there is going to be more of a conducive environment to innovation, 
Um, is there anything else that you learned from that research that was particularly interesting with regard to how well we're doing as a sector with being able to sort of get to that point where we are, you know, operating in this maximised and innovative way? So I think the other really interesting thing, which maybe doesn't directly answer your question, but was the other area I guess I got very excited about, was um, that there was really strong evidence that um, leaders who come from a racial or ethnic minority background are more likely to have put in place confidential feedback mechanisms during COVID, for example. Mm. So this whole idea that... Um, it's not that any individual group, and, and we did um, this research with the Red Cross, and it was, a, it was a really interesting piece of work where they allowed us to talk to their leaders across the movement in the way they responded to COVID. And it wasn't that any particular group um, was better or worse. That was not the purpose of the research. But it was about saying, what are the different voices that people brought to the table? And there were really interesting things like that. And again, that was statistically significant. So we ran this mm -hmm. as a test, and we discovered that there was absolutely more likely that people from that background would have put in place those mechanisms. So we, we know that people come with their life experiences and, and the other interesting differences were actually in relation to professional backgrounds. So when people have been outside the sector for a long time, they're more likely to think about um, different areas to those people who've been in the sector. Um, so I think it's just an openness to hear those different voices um, and, to, and to be able to help that solve some of these problems. Mm. I think it's absolutely right to have raised the question around where AAP is going um, and how accountable we really are. Um, I think, you know, Meg, you and I have been working on, on something in the wings around thinking through what some of this means for our sector. And obviously this is this is core to your job and what and what you do. But I, you know, I think in some ways we need to to step back and look at the issue. And you know, when I was talking earlier about shining the light with with a with a different, we need to take a different approach to it because the approach we've been taking so far is that if we write enough guidance notes and if we provide enough tick box things and if we ask people enough whether or not they set up a feedback mechanism, somehow that will lead to impact. And we've had years and years of this and it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And actually having a feedback box does not mean that somebody's voice is heard or that a program changes. And I think one of the things that um, really needs to happen is being able to, to sort of step back and some of the conversations you and I have had is about really kind of getting out of the weeds and being able to go, okay, what is the big picture and how are we really ensuring impact? And, you know, interestingly, linking back to your point about the, the local context, one of the stories I got very excited about um, that, that we were discussing was this idea of um, after the Hazelwood fires, actually, which was um, a fire event here in Australia a couple of years ago, there was a commissioner who was set up to, to basically ensure that, that we were hearing community voice. And it was such a contrast to what we do in the international sector. So basically, she was told, go out and listen to what people want. And she traveled buses. She got on buses and she just had conversations with people. And I think it was so much more about the outcome that was intended, which is that they wanted their program to be responsive to what people said, rather than the ways it had to be done. And I think what we've done in our sector is we've got so caught up in the ways it has to be done that we have forgotten what the impact is we're trying to have. Um, and so I think there's a fundamental rebalancing that, that needs to take place that We'll, we'll take time, but we'll be, <laughs> hopefully, um, yeah, we, we can make it. <laughs> um, while I've got you all fired up, which I think is good energy to end on, um, I guess a question for both of you, what, you know, obviously this has been a very strange year or, you know, now over a year. 
Um, what are the sort of most interesting things that you've learned or that you've been working on and, and you know, what has you sort of fired up as we're going into the, the second half of this year? Well, I think in, I could be boring in saying that it's really stuff that came out of our scoping and our new research program. So on the 1st of July, we're kicking off a new research program, which is going to be exploring some of these really hard issues around the people in power, around how are humanitarians involving in, in climate action um, and, and what are some of these key issues that we could be, be providing rapid uh, sort of a, a research lens to that's going to actually change things as we're going forward. But I think the other thing that I've really learnt, um, and it's through this behavioural science piece and, and why I think it's so <laughs> fundamental is it can apply to every part of our lives, I think. Our, the behavioural science scientists we've been working with sort of said it's not around raising awareness. We always think, oh, it's around raising awareness. We educate people and, of course, that will change. If they have the evidence, of course, that will change. We know that that's not the case. We all know that we should exercise and eat healthily and, and cut out our alcohol. But, you know, how many of us actually do that? And I, I love the way that she, she has um, a, a quote that she uses, which is all around, you know, make it easy and this question of, making things the default. And I think if we can look at more around how, what, what behaviour looks like, what, what systems and processes look like, and they could be small and sometimes even cost-neutral tweaks that we can make within this system. Um, and someone actually raised these in a workshop we were having this week around how do we look at how different organisations work in support of a locally-led response. And people are saying, well, at the moment it's it's difficult to actually add in a partner to the work that you're doing and you've got to, you know, there's not a time frame when you're doing your proposal to actually have those conversations, to design it together and actually have a good outcome and put that in and hopefully get funded. But actually we should just flip that and it should already be there in the form. Who is your partner? How are you going to work together? It's not an if, just make it a default. Mm -hmm. And I realise that's the same. It's, it's all, when we talk about, you know, making habits, you know, well-being, all these kind of things, it's the same kind of thing. Tweak it so it's harder to actually do the behaviour that we're actually trying to move away from. So mm. I think this is something that, you know, we're excited about the research we're doing, um, you know, come uh, the 1st of July and, and over these next three years. And we're really keen for, for people to reach out to us if they want to partner. We're really keen to working with people we haven't before and to hearing from people that, um, you know, want to help ask some of these difficult questions with us. Building on what Beth says, I think... I think we have, we're at a really interesting stage right now because there are so many defaults in our humanitarian system that have been challenged by COVID. And we are at such an awesome opportunity and I have been called idealistic since I was four. So, you know, we can just go with the, go with the theme. I actually think we have an amazing opportunity right now. The humanitarian sector continued to operate without international actors being able to fly in. There were multiple crises where national actors were able to respond. Now, we can quibble over whether or not the impact was a great as, as much as we wanted it to be or whether or not it was a, as accountable as we wanted it to be. But then, quite frankly, even when international actors are there, is it as accountable as we want it to be? Mm -hmm. Probably not. So I actually think the fact that that international humanitarian system through national actors continued to operate incredibly well, actually, over the past year under some of the greatest stresses it has ever experienced if that doesn't um, challenge our defaults, um, then I, I feel like we're in, we're in for real trouble. So I think it's exciting in terms of um, potentially being able to really, um, yeah, change the way we operate. 
Kate and Beth, thank you so much. It has been so great to talk to you, um, not least because it got me out of my house for a work-related meeting for the first time in, I think, 14 months. <laughs> so grateful for that. Um, but thank you so much for sharing with us all of your lessons learned and your work and all the inspiring things that you're doing. Um, and we look forward to seeing more from you as the year progresses. Thanks very much. Thank you, May. Thanks, May. It's about the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And knowing the safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>